so there was a time when human desire was perfectly holy and loving. Didn't last very long, but we wanted, we, so our first parents, we wanted the right things and could follow our every desire until the fall. Now our wants are out of whack. Probably don't have to twist your arm to believe that. More often than not, our wants are out of whack. Lust, covetousness, greed. How often are we cold and indifferent where we ought to warmly care and be passionate? Or we're passionate and obsessed with things that are secondary at best. We are driven as human beings all the time by what we want. We also chasten and discipline and deny and stuff down our wants all the time, right? So does that mean we're actually still driven by our wants? Well, even when we deny ourselves, it's because of a greater desire. When you deny your desire for too many sweets, it's because you want to be healthy or because you do not want to put on unwanted pounds. Or you deny your desire to stay in bed because you don't want to lose your job or look bad in the eyes of someone whose opinion really matters to you. So do you realize that Jesus intends to change you and me at the level of our desires? Not just the level of our behavior, though that's important as well. Not just at the level of our words, though that is important as well. At the level of our wants. He wants to reorder our desires, our wants, our loves. All of our problems actually stem from wanting the wrong things and not wanting the right things. It's why in Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart for from it flow the issues of life. Everything flows from the headwaters. But how do you change what you want? I think we know it's not something you can just kind of like flip on and off like a light switch, right? We can't just will ourselves to want rightly. What do we do? So there's a number of ways we can answer that question from the Bible, but for now, we can at least confidently say we need to welcome the redeeming grace of Jesus at the level of our desires. We need to trust him and follow him, and he will change us from the inside out. And we'll see here in Mark 10 that that's what Jesus is aiming at. In fact, he's been aiming at our desires at the from the end of chapter 8 all the way through the end of chapter 10. Repeatedly, he's addressing our desires. We'll see that in just a minute. If you haven't been with us, we'll kind of look back at a couple of those texts. So, I'm going to dive in here. First point, the coming of the Son of Man, verses 32 to 34. So look with me there at Mark 10, 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. So he's not a prisoner being led. He's not being led against his will, you know, to the cross. He is the sovereign, suffering servant, and he's leading the way to his death. And they, the 
disciples that are following him, they're amazed. And they're afraid because really he's walking into the lion's mouth because he is not, he, he is persona non grata with the Jewish leaders, right? They want to kill him. We read that all the way back in chapter three, that that was their intention. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. So very specific prediction, prophecy of Jesus' passion, his suffering and death on the cross. So son of man, um, you see it there in Jesus' prediction. This is one of his favorite terms for himself. In verse 33, the son of man will be delivered over. At the most basic level, it refers to Jesus' humanity. Okay, so the son of anything in the Bible in that time and place spoke of the nature of the person. Okay, there's actually a helpful example in the book of Mark. Remember back in chapter 3 when James and John got nicknamed by Jesus? Boanerges, okay, which means sons of thunder. Does that mean that they're actually Thor's kids? Like, no. It means they were probably some pretty fiery dudes, okay? They had fiery dispositions. They were sons of thunder. Like, they brought the, the noise. They brought the thunder when they were around. So son of man means human, speaks of his humanity which in and of itself is crazy and awesome because we know that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And the reality of the incarnation is more than we can ever get our minds around. But there's more to this title. It actually echoes a mysterious and awesome prophecy in the book of Daniel. Okay, so Daniel chapter 7, I think the text will be up here if you feel like you'll be scrambling to find it. Daniel 7, 9 to 10, and then 13 to 14 um, says this, as I looked, I think, no? No, we don't have that one, okay. Um, so you can turn in your Bibles if you want and take a look at it. Um, Daniel 7, if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 744. So Daniel's got this vision. As I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. Speaking of God the Father, his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And then the next couple verses speak of rival kings and kingdoms that are thrown down because this is the true king. And then verse 13, I saw in the night visions, it's the prophet Daniel, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him, to this son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that 
all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So all creatures, visible and invisible, obviously here in this vision, serve the creator sovereign of the universe, the ancient of days. And then here's this one like a son of man, so he's human in appearance, is presented before the Ancient of Days, and to him is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. So this is like ultimate power and authority, awesome power. So if this one's coming, what would you expect his coming to be like? Like this dominant force demanding that every knee will bow and everyone must serve him. I mean, the coming of the Son of Man is like the end is near. The King of Kings is coming. He's going to throw down all evil and rebellion and establish his kingdom forever. So you can imagine, like, if the disciples are connecting these dots, they've got to be pretty keyed up. This is it. It's about to go down. So look at point number two, verses 35 to 41, selfish ambition. And James and John the sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. So James and John take advantage of this moment to get their their request in before the battle begins. See, they assumed their understanding of the Messiah was political military leader that's going to throw down Roman oppression and set up the kingdom literally, physically right now. So... Before things get bloody, before things get crazy, we're going to just take advantage of this moment to get our request in. Because, you know, Jesus is going to establish himself as the revolutionary liberator that they expected him to be. I mean, they were afraid, at least some of them are afraid, right? Verse 32 on the way, but I mean, Jesus is a miracle worker, right? He stilled the storm. He's commanding demons and they listened to him. Perhaps he could overthrow the Roman oppression with this little band of followers. Their question is pretty shocking. We want you to do for us whatever we ask you. But Jesus' reply is also pretty shocking. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? He doesn't say, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'll be the one telling you what I want you to do, not the other way around. Thank you very much. He also doesn't say, sure, whatever you want. He susses out their motivation, their goals, by asking them a question about what they want, about their desires. Verse 37, and they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. Again, they viewed Jesus as this messianic king. Their expectation was he would come and set things to rights, conquering the Roman oppressors, freeing the Jews, thus bringing end times, peace and prosperity, the kingdom of God, the city of God, the fallen throne of David would rise with glory and power. So again, in view of this coming victory, we want the prime positions in the cabinet when you come to power. That's what they're asking for. We don't want the main throne mind you, just the little thrones on either side of you. But they're fixated on their rank and status and power and position. 
And Jesus says to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So baptism in this context is similar to our expression, baptism by fire, okay? An ordeal, going through an ordeal. So, and they said to him, we're able. (laughs) Again, not named sons of thunder for nothing, right? Probably what they thought Jesus was saying is, are you ready to fight for me? Yeah, we're ready. We're able. But they didn't know what they were asking. Jesus is saying, if you're asking to share my glory, you are asking to share my suffering. Now, there is one sense. We need to just kind of pause here for a second. There's one sense in which Jesus' suffering is incommunicable, okay? It's his alone. It's not something he shares with anyone else. No one can drink the cup or be baptized with the baptism he's about to undergo in one way, okay? So in the Old Testament, the cup is a metaphor for the judgment and wrath of God on evil and rebellion. So for instance, Psalm 88, 8. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. So the cup refers to the judgment of God, the wrath of God against wickedness, against sinners. So Jesus is going to drink the cup of God's righteous wrath and judgment in our place for all who would turn from their sins and trust in him, which is why he he was never afraid merely to die. You know, people kind of threatened to kill him, right? And it it never fazed him until the Garden of Gethsemane when he looked into the cup of the wrath of God. That's when he started to sweat drops of blood. So Mark 14, he took with him Peter, James, and John, began to be greatly distressed and troubled, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. And so on the cross... Jesus drank the cup of the wrath and judgment of God. Listen, this is not like hair trigger anger out of control. This is God's principled opposition to evil. You don't want a God who just winks at wickedness. You want a God of justice. I mean, we get angry when our dignity is slighted. And we don't want to, like, we don't like kind of accepting the fact that God is wrathful against sin when his name is belittled. Like, we need to realize this is righteous, holy wrath and anger against sin. And you know what? We're all in trouble unless Jesus drinks this cup for us. And that's exactly what he did at the cross. He takes that cup that we deserve to drink, metaphorically speaking, to 
receive the judgment of God, the condemnation of God, the punishment for our sins. He drinks it to the dregs on the cross, slams it down and says, it is finished. I I love this quote by John Stott. Um, He says, it is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated, appeased. Okay, his wrath needs to be satisfied. He can't just wink at sin, sweep it under the rug of the universe. But God himself, who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating. God himself, who who in the person of his son died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it his own self in his own son when he took our place and died for us. There is no crudity here to evoke our ridicule, only the profundity of holy love to evoke our worship. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Give that, give you a second there. Christ died for us because God loved us. If it is God's wrath which needed to be propitiated, it is God's love which did the propitiating. So we can't pay for our sins. Like, or we, I guess we can in hell forever. There's no way we can atone for our sins. There's no way we can save ourselves. And so for God to be both just and to pardon guilty criminals, Jesus had to take our place on the cross, drink the cup for us. And he did and he slammed it down. It is finished, and by that grace, if you trust in Jesus, you're given a different cup. We deserve the cup of wrath. He gives us the cup of salvation. Psalm 116, 12 to 13, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. More, please. (laughs) I need more grace, more help. So we drink the cup of the new covenant in his blood. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus drank every ounce of the wrath you and I deserve on the cross so that we are completely set free forever. The ransom has been paid. So in that sense, Jesus' suffering is unique. We do not follow him in suffering like that, drinking the cup in that way. He suffers in our place on the cross for our sins because we can't pay the debt of our sins. We can't atone for the guilt of our sins. I mean, people try all the time, but we can't do it. But in another sense, those who follow Jesus follow him in his suffering. I mean, this is the key to the section that we've been looking at for these last few weeks, Mark 8, the end of chapter 8 through to the end of chapter 10. So you remember like back in chapter 8, you know, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And, you know, they give some answers. And then who do you say that I am? Well, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus says, okay, you're right. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer and die. And Peter says, never. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of man, human values. If anyone wants, it's the desire word, 
wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake and the gospels, you will find it. And then in chapter nine, Jesus predicts his suffering again. And they don't really know what to do with it. They don't ask him. And then they're traveling. And when they get to their destination, Jesus says, so what were you arguing about on the way? And they don't want to say anything because they were arguing about who's the greatest, who's the goat disciple. And Jesus says, if anyone wants to be, desire, same desire word, wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And now here, I'm going to die. And what do the sons of thunder say? Hey, hey, we'd like the prime positions in your cabinet. Can we have the places of honor? And Jesus says to them, verse 39, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. So listen, if you fast forward, these two men did suffer. In Acts 12, you know what happens to James? It records that he was martyred. He was killed as, at a, as a martyr at the hands of Herod the king. And then what about John? Revelation, exiled to the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. So Jesus predicted their future suffering before they even understood why he was suffering, why he was heading to suffer and die. And lest you think that it was just the sons of thunder that were the only selfishly ambitious ones in the group, look at verse 41. And when the other 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They weren't, you know, self-righteously angry like, you shouldn't have asked for that. They were like, you know, don't give it to them. <laughs> they were full of rivalry and selfish ambition as well. They wish they would have asked ahead of James and John. They didn't want James and John to get any advantage over them. So, how would Jesus respond to this? I mean, he's heading to the cross. This is the third time he's predicted his suffering and death. And each time the disciples are just totally tone deaf. We'll look at third point here. The way that Jesus responds, just amazing how he doesn't lambast them for their blindness, for their kind of thick-headedness and pride. He pulls them in again and teaches them graciously and patiently. So look at point number three, the servant son of man verses 42 to 45. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. So to speak of the Gentiles, do you know what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, so you know those Roman oppressors you so want to be set free from? You know the ones that exploit you and lord it over you? the ones you're hoping that I've come to overthrow, the ones who grab power for their own benefit, the ones who love status and authority to use it for their own advantage. Yeah, well, that's how you guys are acting. But it shall not be so among you. I mean, I could give plenty of examples from our political sphere of how this is very relevant and you know, contemporary in its dynamics, right? The power grab. 
preserving power rather than, you know, who cares about morality as long as you win? But it shall not be so among you. But whoever, here's the want word again. It's translated as would, but it's whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Hey, James and John, you want to be great. You want to be first and second. Whoever would be great, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Waiting tables. That's what that word is used of. We get the word deacon, you know, servants from the Greek word that's underneath that word servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. It's like the lowest of the low. A slave is even lower than a servant. So here it is again, what you want. If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. If anyone wants to be great, let him be the servant of all. And here, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. So this is a total paradigm shift for the disciples. And it is for us. This goes against the grain of our kind of naturally selfish, prideful, sinful nature. We naturally want to grab and use and maintain power for our own sake. We reach for control. We reach for influence. And in and of themselves, those things aren't bad, but we so oftentimes use them for our own advantage. We like climbing ladders, don't we? We like being better and stronger and higher and more than others. We don't like the opposite. But following Jesus is not like that doesn't mean you won't ever have power or influence. It means what we do with any power and influence that we do have is totally different than how the world uses it. So to follow Jesus is to use power to help and serve others. To use any power that you have to lift up the needy, the weak, the vulnerable, the helpless, the hurting, The way of the world is to strive to be great. The way of Jesus is true greatness. So a servant or a slave, what are they focused on? They are not focused on their own interests, but the interests of others, the ones that they serve. So the path that we walk as we follow Jesus is a path of love serving others, their interests ahead of our own. Philippians 2, 3, like Jesus said, or like Paul said in application of this. So this is actually possible in every category of life. What if husbands and wives live this out in marriage? What happens when parents live this out in the way that they parent? Friends in the way that they relate to one another. In the church, in the way that we interact with and love one another. It's also possible in business. I mean, just think, even something like starting a business, the motivation for starting a business or, let's say, taking a promotion can either be aligned with worldly values or aligned with this. You can be driven by this, following Jesus. So, When I start mentioning all these different categories of life and totally being focused on the interests of others and using everything we have for the sake of others, like, do you you quickly start to feel a little overwhelmed? Anybody? (laughs) And convicted and just tired even thinking about it? Like, 
How do you live like this? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, so listen. Remember Daniel 7. One came like a son of man that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. And here the son of man comes not to be served, but to serve. This is a shocker. So this is ultimate power and authority. We expect him to just, you know, every knee should bow, boom, right now. Especially because we've sinned and gone astray. We've belittled, we've spurned, we've rebelled against this king. We are little seditious insurrectionists at a cosmic level by nature. So we would expect this one to maybe give everybody one shot, you know, are you with me or are you against me? Everybody just kind of rushing around out of fear, serving him, you know, out of fear of reprisal. Because by sheer of just, by show of sheer might and strength, he's going to establish his kingdom. But there's no king like this king. The son of man came not to be served, at least not the first time, but to serve. He did not want to force everyone to bow the knee. That's not why Jesus came. We didn't just need an almighty king to strong arm us into submission. We needed a savior to pay the infinite debt of our sin, our twisted, broken, selfish desires. Drink the cup of the wrath of God we deserve. Change our hearts from the inside out. He gave his life as a ransom for us. It was deliverance by purchase. We couldn't free ourselves. Our debt is infinite. We have no power or resources, and we are freed by another. Him in our place, the cost paid for us. This is why Jesus came. He suffered for us, died for us, to serve us like no one else could. And he did it to change us by the power of the gospel, by the power of this grace. So how are you going to live this way? How are you going to actually follow him in this? By the power of his serving grace. Like he came to serve us, to give us grace, to change us from the inside out so that we would be new people. We died to the old selfish way of life and use of power. And we are resurrected. We're made new, made alive together with Christ to a whole new way of life. And that's the daily rhythm of repenting and believing. We follow Jesus down the ladder, not stepping on other people, climbing up the ladder. That's true graceness. That's Jesus' greatness. So what is your view of God and his commands and his call to serve him? Do you feel like God is like, a demanding taskmaster, you know, this kind of harsh celestial taskmaster? Or do you realize God is this humble servant serving and suffering and dying for us so that he can so strengthen and change and fill us by his serving grace that we are enabled to serve him in the strength that he supplies and serve others in the strength that he supplies.
when we are served by his gospel grace, we get filled up. Undeserved mercy, undeserved grace. I mean, that's redundant, I know, but it's love, kindness, his promises, his very great and precious promises, so that out of fullness, we overflow on others. We no longer have to jockey for position because we've already been made beloved sons of daughters of the king of the universe. We have all we need. So we can use all we have to lift other people up. Or when it comes to speech, we don't have to be, you know, empty and biting and devouring, kind of chewing people up. We can be filled with the grace of God and bless and build others up with the grace that is ours in Christ. But we won't be able to do this unless he first serves us. And I mean, that's how you come to faith in Christ. That's also how you live by faith in Christ. Do you remember John 13 with the, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet and he got to Peter and Peter said, oh, no, 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 you can't wash my feet. I need to wash yours. And Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Unless I serve you, you're not following me. You're trying to do it in your own steam. Oh, okay, okay, then wash my head, my hands, but everything just like totally dunked me. So Jesus washes his disciples' feet. He serves them. That's a picture of the cross. It's a foreshadowing of the cross, the ultimate service to us needy sinners. And then we go and love others as he's loved us, giving our lives for them, serving them in the strength that he supplied. So we are ransomed, we are liberated, we are freed from our slavery to sin in order to be servants and slaves of all. That is true discipleship. It's the upside down, which is actually the right side up, values of the kingdom. This is Philippians 2. Don't consider your own interests, but the interests of others. So, James Edwards, um, I think I've quoted him just about every week, commentator, summarizes it well. He says this, the pronouncement is, of course, an oxymoron. For a slave who was inferior even to a servant was in ancient society the last and least of all. The idea of a slave being first is as absurdly paradoxical as a camel going through the eye of a needle. And it probably likewise induced smiles and shaking heads from Jesus' audience. The desire for power and dominance focuses attention on self, and this kills love. For love by nature is focused on others. Disciples should adopt the posture of servants and slaves not on the basis of ethical reasoning, but because it is the posture of the Son of Man. The life to which the gospel calls believers is not an ethical system, but the way of the Lord, of which Jesus is the pattern and incarnation. Now, sadly, the disciples didn't get it, right? They will. But they still need to understand. They need to have their eyes open to what it means to follow Jesus. And so Jesus gives them a living parable. Last point here, this model disciple. So look at verse 46. Here's one of the last who will be first with Jesus. 
And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So he's by the way, like that word roadside can be the word translated way. In fact, it's translated way at the end of this section. So he's sitting, he's sidelined beside the way. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David. So he recognizes maybe that Jesus is the king, the coming Davidic king. Have mercy on me like a little child, he cries out with his need. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. They, th- they thought he was a nuisance, you know. Jesus shouldn't be bothered or delayed. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? It's the same question he asked the disciples, or James and John. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, actually, it's more than just Rabbi, it's Rabuni. It's a rare word that usually is not used in reference to another human being. It's usually in reference to God. It's full of respect. So again, this man sees more than the disciples see, perhaps. Let me recover my sight. You're the one that can make the blind see. Isaiah 35. When the king comes, the blind are going to see. And the blind man said to him, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well or saved you. That word can be translated saved you. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. He was by the way. And then the Lord gave him his sight. And now he wants to follow Jesus on the way. So there was fear in the disciples back in verse 32, and this guy is eager to follow Jesus. This is a model disciple. (laughs) So he was by the way back in verse 46, and now he's on the way following Jesus. And look at how his desires have been changed. What did Jesus say? Go your way. What's his way? I want to follow Jesus. Wherever you go, I want to follow you. So his way is now on the way following Jesus. So he is this model disciple, a living parable of what Jesus is come to do. So brothers and sisters, what do you want? Do you want worldly greatness? Like where, like may the Holy Spirit shine the, searchlight on our hearts. Where are our desires shaped more by the world than by the word? Do you want worldly greatness, worldly comfort, worldly my interests above others? Or maybe just let me control how much of my focus is on others, you know, so that it's in this nice, neat, little, comfortable box. Or do you want to be served by Jesus, knowing that apart from him, you deserve to drink the cup of the wrath of God, and he drank it for you, and I want to be, I need to be served by Jesus. I'm so thankful that he came to be a ransom for my sin, so that in the strength and grace that he alone can supply, I can now follow him 
on the path of true greatness, down the ladder, loving others, serving a slave of all, as he first loved you. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing a closing song. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you that you did not come to be served, but to serve and give your life as a ransom. I pray that we would realize the desperate, ultimate need that we all have so that that just looms so large and huge and wonderful in our eyes. And we are just overwhelmed and grateful at your grace to be the one to die in our place and pay the debt we couldn't pay. And I pray that that grace would so fill us that we don't have anything left to prove. We don't need to be great in the world's eyes. We don't, certainly don't need to angle for our own advantage. I pray that instead we would use everything that you give us to serve and bless and lift others up and shine with your light and your truth and your grace and your love. Please help us, Lord. We need your grace to follow you like this. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.